Great to be um, here this morning. I was, my husband and I came to the opening of your center um, a few weeks ago, I guess in January, and it was just such a wonderful, wonderful morning and afternoon, and I just congratulate everybody here who's worked hard to make it happen. Um, Gil's my teacher, and I adore him, and I feel very flattered that he asked me to come here this morning, and I wish everybody you know, many years of insight and practice in this wonderful building. I mean, it's the story, just the story of how you got it and how Gil had an interview to be spiritual enough <laughs> and uh, all the little uh, interesting intrigues about it is uh, really charming and a great, testament, a great testament to the Dharma, especially in this age of greed, <laughs> the Enron greed and the um, war hatred. <laughs> Um, whichever flavor you want of what the Buddha called was our great illness in our in our social world that the center could come into being you know in the middle of that so um, uh, again my hearty congratulations to you so I want to ease probably some of the anxiety that many men may have here this morning who are who are not uh, focused on eating like some of the other people in the room. Um, if you, <laughs> no, if you're not, if you know, if food isn't your issue, it could seem very, very boring. Uh, so you can just substitute, you know, whatever drives you, whatever, whatever kind of drivenness, whether it's it's money or ambition or sex or you know, rock and roll, whatever it is. Um, we're all talking about the same disease that the Buddha talked about which um, is that drivenness that, or that compulsion that drives us to go towards something that's never going to satisfy us. Um, the Buddha called it a, like a wheel off center. I think Kafka called it like being um, seasick on land. You know, there's lots of interesting metaphors to describe that feeling of chasing after something in a very... Um, you know, really ignorant or deluded way, and, and, and I say that in a, with all the kindness in my heart, it's not ignorance by lack of intelligence, it's ignorance by the firm belief that we have, and it's a delusion, that when we, when we either get rid of something that we don't like or we, or we get something that we're hankering after, that we're actually going to be happy. And the Buddha kind of you know, burst open this, this delusion for all, all of us in our own ways. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Everybody can pick their poison, and that's what the Buddha said was. This was these were poisons. They were poisoning our body, and that's why we needed mindfulness, because mindfulness was the cure. It's, it's a cure of the disease of desire. And um, so really my talk isn't just about food exclusively, but it's talking about the diseases of desire that we have. And they go from, as I just said earlier, you know, the disease to conquer, um, the disease to believe that we're right and other people are wrong, and you know um, the disease of, of greed that you know you can't get enough. I was reading in the paper about this um, this Mr. Lay, Kenneth, Mr. Kenneth Lay. You know, you know he had seven houses. I mean, most people don't even have one, right? But um, he didn't think he had enough. You know, he wanted more, and um, I understand that. I mean, not not in the housing world, but I understand it in the eating world. You know. Um, and so, you know, not, I don't have to make Mr. Leia an enemy because I understand that he has, he has a similar disease of desire like I have and like we have, on our, otherwise we wouldn't be sitting here. Um, 
and he has to heal it on one level and we're trying to heal it on another. But um, that's where compassion comes from because we try not to divide. As sitters, as meditators, we, we make an effort not to divide ourselves even though it's, it's very tempting <laughs> when we read things about what's going on in the war and, um, and we read things that's going on in terms of uh, the incredible harm that's been done to people. You know, these, these, these sob stories, which I'm very vulnerable to, people losing their life savings because somebody else's greed. It's no different than people losing their lives because of someone else's hatred. Um, so that, that's, what I've kind of, that's the main focus of what I want to talk about tonight. And the Buddha's today, excuse me, this morning, this beautiful morning, by the way, um, dramatic morning, um, I want to talk about the Buddha as the great physician. You know, he's known as the awakened one, but he was also known as the great physician. And although he didn't really treat, you know, food addictions per se, I mean, he, he certainly knew about them. As a prince, he was lavished with the most, you know, wonderful delicacies of his time. I don't know what they were. Um, and then, uh, of course, as an ascetic, he got so thin that, it, that the myth is that he was able to put his finger through his belly and touch his spine. I wish. <laughs> not, not really, not really, not really. Um, I have a long way to go. But, um, and actually, I didn't know this until um, a, nun, a nun told me this, that the Buddha actually died of food poisoning. Did you know that? I didn't know it either. Um, someone offered him a meal, and not intentionally. Uh, the Buddha ate the meal, and he, he died, and it was it causally related to the food poisoning. So, you know, and, and when, and this is my favorite anecdote of the Buddha, you know, when he went from a, um, a prince to an aesthetic, he, um, when, when he was in the alms, you know, uh, rounds and he was going around uh, seeking uh, offerings from the lay community, he, uh, the first time he ate um, from the alms round, uh, you know, his bowl, he actually threw up. <laughs> he actually threw up. And... Uh, it was an unfamiliar situation to him, and his response was a, his response was to vomit. And I just love that, not because I'm weird, but because um, you know it was so human. He 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 threw up in response to an unfamiliar situation, but it didn't deter him, and it's deterred me through so many situations where, like, I was so obsessed about the food. Should I go to this thing? Shouldn't I go to this food? What if I don't have enough? You know. But the Buddha didn't say, "Okay, I'm not going to be." not going to try to become a Buddha because I didn't like the food. He worked, he worked it through. He worked it through. And, and actually the um, alms offering is one of the, you know, the, the things that, that ties the time of the Buddha to what monks do today. And it's not that they love everything that gets put in their, their monks' bowls because, of course, I've questioned the monks extensively on this and the nuns. Um, and how revolting some of it is sometimes. You know, just... You know, chocolate-covered ants or spiders or snails or, you know, snakes. Weird things get put in their, their, their arms, but weird things, especially for Americans or the British. But, you know, they're not throwing out, you know, the, the whole system of um, receiving offerings because they don't like the food, right? But how many times, you know, do we, we denigrate somebody or we elevate somebody? You know, we take the exaggerate qualities or quantities, um, and we identify them and we revolve our life around them. 
So the the medicine that I want to talk about this morning again is the is the is the antidote to the diseases that we're all plagued with, um, and specifically the cure which the Buddhists saw as seeing our lives shaped by the Four Noble Truths. And um, for two, for many, over two thousand five hundred years, the Buddha and many other great meditation masters have really looked at the Four Noble Truths like a recipe, which is interesting. It's an interesting parallel that um, that the that the Four Noble Truths in, in, includes the all the ingredients we need to liberate our, our our hearts and minds. There's nothing that's in those ingredients that's going to hurt hurt us in any way. On the contrary, you know, if we apply any of the Four Noble Truths um, and we apply them wholeheartedly, okay, even just one, like right aspiration or right speech or looking at attachment as the cause of, uh, a cause of suffering, any one of those will lead us to liberation because they're all, they're all interrelated, they're all interconnected. So um, in modern-day terms, it's not just like a recipe, but it's really like a prescription, the First Noble Truth being a description of suffering. You know what? What's the what's the symptom? You know, and um, we all have our own flavors of symptoms of of what what really makes us unhappy. And um, you know, it goes from only having seven houses to you know being homeless or hungry. And uh, par- probably farther up the greed scale and farther down the aversion scale. You know, whatever whatever flavor, it's all in the realm of of suffering. And it's and I and I just love the way the um, the Buddha described it as a wheel off center because even when you're, you know, hankering after something, you know something's really not quite right. I mean, the delusion that you think getting it is going to cure it, um, you know, it's kind of a sadness. And you see people kind of after, you know, ambitiously pumping for something, and they don't look very happy usually. But the happiness is going to be someplace else. It's going to be at another time and place with either money or a relationship or another house or a move to a different city or another book or. Um, whatever, and so you know that wheel off center um, is the is the symptom that the Buddha looked at as the great you know the, the great sadness of the world. And you know you see you see images of some bodhisattvas and they're crying, and you see other bodhisattvas where their hands are out, you know, with, met, with like multi hands, you're trying to touch people's burdens, and you see other bodhisattvas laughing at the absurdity of it all. I mean, it is absurd if you think. I mean, it's, I'm not. I'm not at the stage. I'm going to laugh, laugh yet. But it's, it's somewhere. And sometimes when I'm sitting, I do see the absurdity of it all. You know, like who has the best lasagna, or you know, things like that. It's like ridiculous. I mean, the effort, the amount of energy we spent on, you know, getting the best skis or making sure, you know, we stay away from something or somebody. Um, and also, as a result, other bodhisattvas laugh at, not laugh at us, but laugh at. The absurdity of us trying to find um, a core of stability uh, in the midst of um, grasping on things that are inherently off-center um, are inherently—it's built into the system that that happiness can't be found, and yet there we all are. Um, and the second noble truth. So we have the symptom. And then we have the cause of it. You know, it's a, there's, a, there's a disease and it manifests in a certain way. And then in the second noble truth, you know, we have the cause. Um, so what's causing the disease? What, and, and so many times you hear, well, you know, you're 
poor parenting or you know poor education, whatever. You know, the Buddha just really nailed it, and he said it was a it was a craving, craving, uh, and in, in more kind of delicate terms, he called it attachment. But that attachment doesn't really get to it. You know, craving you get. You know, it's just that that burning inner desire. And I love the story. Um, about Nasruddin, who's kind of that wise fool, and he's in a he's in a cafe, and he's struggling with a friend of his about what kind of uh, eggplant to get, whether roasted or um, stuffed. Okay, and they're having this big battle, and finally Nasruddin, the wise fool, um, capitulates, and he says, "Okay, we'll get the roasted. I don't want to argue anymore." And just after they order the roasted, and he wanted the stuffed. Um, the um, his eating eating friend or his companion for the meal kind of falls over and he, it looks like he's having a heart attack. And Nasruddin jumps up and, and uh, the guy at the next table said, oh, where are you going? Uh, are you going to go get a doctor? He says, no, I'm going to see if it's too late to change my order. <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, that's, that's desire. It it's so drives you and blinds you, you know. And we all know what that's like, right? We're all trying to change the order all the time. And that's that's our disease. We're trying to change the order. You know, if we go, if we go to France this summer, or, or you know, we get a new job, or we break up with somebody, or we find somebody. You know, these, this is the this is the changing the order um, disease or cause of the disease, I should say, that we all have. And um, it's funny, but it's also obviously sad because we can see it how absurd it is, and it. Changing an order of eggplant, but it's you know when, when it's hitting our button, right? When it's hitting the thing that we want to grasp, or we need to change, and in our sincere belief, it's going to make a huge difference in our life. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, it's not so funny. It's sad, and um, you know we spend days and days and months and months on a cushion just trying to un, you know tease apart you know, what that sadness or what that angst or what that craving is all about. And, and to see all the qualities of it or the three, the three major qualities that it's, you know, that it's a cause of suffering and that it's impermanent and that it's not, it's not as solid as we perceive it to be and um, that essentially it's empty of any particular quality because, you know, kind of one man's meat is another man's poison. And there's another story that I tell in my book that my friend Zena told me about how in, um, I always get it mixed up. It's either in, in France, I think kangaroo meat is a real delicacy. I know, it just not, we're not conditioned, right? So we think it sounds disgusting, these little hopping things, you know, being, ending up on our plate. So, but, and, um, but to certain people, it's a delicacy. And then again, um, so these people were saying, how could, you know, how could you eat this delicacy? Well, one, to one person it's a delicacy, to other person it's like this vile, you know, this, you know, unthinkable thing. So, you know, it's not that um, in, the, in emptiness. I love thinking about emptiness that way because certain cultures like certain things, right? It's not it's not built into the the object like kangaroo meat. There's nothing inherently disgusting or delicious about kangaroo meat. It's empty. It's what we project onto it and what we imbue it with. And uh, you see it in terms of food, and you see it in terms of, you know, every, every culture, you know, has its clash and why we've projected on some empty thing and, and made it, you know, we made it into something significant, and then we fight about it, you know, whether it's important or not, but it's empty. So just like kangaroo meat is empty, <clears throat> you know, so are 
you know, many other, so is everything. So is everything. And if you can't get it through emptiness, you, get it, you, you see that it's impermanent and, and ungraspable. Which is, you know, you know, impermanent. They're all doors to deeper understanding. Um, and, you know, sometimes you sit and say, I can't believe that they, you know, that she or he got so upset about it. And these other people are ready to, you know, they're really upset. It's a great example, example of emptiness. You don't see, you're not, you're not projecting on a particular person. What did you see in him? You know, or what did he see in her? But here's this person is writhing in agony, you know, for this breakup. It's empty. It's not, it's, 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 it's not that the person who says, what did she see in him or what did he see in her? Not that they're right and the other person's wrong or vice versa. It's not that. It's, it's empty. It does, it's just imbued with our projections. And our projections are so thick that, you know, it's like Vaseline over our eyes, over our glasses or over our eyeballs. And then um, the Buddha is very... Uh, you know, the Buddha is so kind, you know, compassionate. He doesn't make us feel terrible about feeling these, you know, we're not, we're not bad, we're not sinful, you know, it's not that, tr- that guilt trip that you can get in other, um, in other forms of spiritual development. It's, it's just saying that this is, this is the path, you know, the, this is what we have to get familiar with, this is what we have to know and learn about ourselves and about human beings. This is, this is what we do, but it's not where we have to stay. We don't have to stay stuck. And we have to know about the hungry ghost, you know, these mythical beings that have, you know, huge um, uh, bellies and tiny pinhole mouths and who can never get satisfied. It's not that, you know, we're the only ones, that we're, we're in a whole family, human family of these beings. You know, it's not that Mara just comes to us, you know, in the form of, you know, candy bars or relationships or jobs or money. Um, or housing or location. Not, it's not that Mara comes. So Mara came to the Buddha, and I love this, after he was enlightened. I love it and I hate it because I like to think that once you get there, you know, you're free of Mara kind of hammering at you. But Mara's there all the time. It's just part of the fabric, it's just part of the air of life. And so the Buddha didn't get, you know, d- didn't get upset. Actually, those, um, some of the images of um, when the night of Buddha's enlightenment and Mara was throwing arrows. What happened to the arrows? Does anybody know? Yeah, they turned into flowers. They turned into rose petals. You know, he, that's because the Buddha didn't see Mara as Mara anymore. It just was Mara. That it was just Mara, and so he didn't have to. The projection wasn't an arrow. The projection became, you know, beauty. And so he's surrounded by beauty as opposed to being poked around by arrows. And he got poked. The Buddha was being poked right and left the night of his enlightenment. You know, the gorgeous women and beautiful feasts of food and, you know, music. And I mean, he had it all. But he, that, was, that, was the, that was the beauty of what he did. He just anchored himself in seeing it as opposed to grabbing it and getting lost in it. And that's what we do. So, uh, so that's why, you know, any moment that we can just sit here in the moment with our in-breath or our out-breath or in the between-breath, um, it's a moment of freedom. We're not grasping, and that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's what the, the Buddha said it was the third noble truth, the, um, that we can actually uh, cure ourselves of this disease of desire by recognizing the attachments and then letting go of them, which is really easier said than done. And I like to say it's not really letting go, it's just letting be, because I can tell you from um, all my neuroses, <clears throat> around food and I won't bore you and my husband will be glad to tell you and he won't bore you um, but they um, you know because they're so absurd that uh, and what 
what I can get so upset about around eating that um, there's a freedom if I can just see it and I'm not, you know, stuck in a primal identification with it. And, um, you know, alcoholics say the same thing and, you know, gamblers say the same thing. You know, when you have an addiction, when you have that, that attachment is so strong, you know, just any moment of relief, which is really just a moment of, it's not just, I'm not minimizing it, a moment of staying present. You know, you're not grasping, you're not, you know, you're not uh, pushing away, you're just there, and then you could be there for anything. Because it doesn't matter if it's a moment of greed or hatred or delusion, because the present is the present. The present does not discriminate. So it's not looking so much for a label, it's looking for the release. It's looking for a release instead of a label. Um, but labeling does help us release. So it's kind of one of those um, uh, paradoxes that we still need to see. We need to see what's in front of us, but in seeing what's in front of us, it's mutually exclusive that we can't be grasping it, right? Because if you're grasping um, some kind of um, struggle, you can't be struggling. I mean, excuse me, if you're grasping and noting it, you can't be grasping because you're noting. So you're noting the grasping and, the, and that releases the grasping because you can't note and grasp at the same time. So ultimately the, that third noble truth is looking for that release. And in that release you could be releasing anything. And so, it's not, so, so the third noble truth which is, the, which is saying you know, there, a cure is possible. You don't have an incurable disease. That, you could, that the cure is in the release, that the, the, the cure is in the letting go. At this point, a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't want to let, I love my, I love my whatever, you know, I don't want to let go of it. And it doesn't mean that you, you feel less strongly. You feel things more purely, right? Because instead of feeling the grasping or instead of feeling the aversion, you're really f feeling very um, intimately, you know, the love or the hatred. And that's what we're always valuing between, right? The love of something or the hatred of another. It's just a different um, flavor of the love and what extreme it is or what, you know, non-extreme it is. So um, that's what ultimately we're looking at all the time, you know, with a flavor of wanting or a flavor of aversion and um, various flavors of delusion. You know, what, what is clouding our perceptions from seeing things? And that's one of the great um, pleasures of being a meditator because you can sit here and it's boring and it's boring and you have all this aversion. How long is it going to take? When are we going to get out of here? I'm uncomfortable. Or this is paradise. I love it. It's fantastic. I want to stay here forever and, you know, the hell with my regular life. I'm on the path. So you're looking at these two things all the time, you know, all the time. They're just flavoring back and forth. And, of course, the delusion is, is that, you know, that it's not in the, that your life isn't in, in what you want to get rid of and your life isn't what you want to get. It's just, you know, seeing, gee, I'm really volleying between wanting, you know, liking and disliking or wanting and wanting to push away now, now, right now, because, you know, the past is in your present mind and so is your future. So what else do you have? Right? So you're not... You know, the meal, you know, I, I can't even, I, I couldn't even dream of the number of times I've been eating and loving what I'm eating and hoping I can get more of it. In which case, I'm really not eating. I'm just, I'm in hoping I can get more of it, right? So I miss the whole experience because I'm in the hoping I can get more of it land, which is not a very satisfying place to be.
right? But if I'm really consciously aware, I'm hoping to get more of it. At least I can get, and the Buddha said this so brilliantly, that you, that you can get satisfaction in any moment because if you're present for it, the presence of your attention is what's satisfied. It's not, you know, it's not the concept at all. So that's why the Buddha said, you know, the concepts that we get stuck in, you know, of past and future, or good and bad, or liking and disliking, or, you know, better or worse, you know, these are, that's what makes us hungry, either emotionally or physically. That's, you know, lunging towards the future, or, you know, lunging after the past, and trying to redo it. You know that one? You know, you're, you're trying to redo it. It's so humbling, you know. <laughs> Um, that's what makes us hungry when we're not aware of it. He said, you know, to, lunging towards the, the, the future or lunging, you know, after the past or to, to reject it, you know, th- those are fine things. So those are normal aspects of the mind. But if you're not aware of it, they make you hungry. And if you are aware of it, those same experiences of the mind could actually satisfy you because it's the only thing you have. So why miss it? It's hard to get, though, right? That's why we're here over and over again every Sunday, every Monday night. We're here over and over again trying to see through that delusion of, you know, if we re- so what if we rewrite the past? So what if we color what the future is going to be? So what, right? The so what is that we, you know, that, that it may happen that way. And maybe we can even redo the past, which is unlikely. But even if we could, so what? Um, we're, missing the, we're missing the whole meal, which is right now which is the only thing we have and the only thing we're ever going to have. So that's why we talk, we talk about meditation as being moment-to-moment experience. It's moment-to-moment satisfaction. And when we have enough of these moments, that's when we feel that, ah, oh, you know, we just feel that inner anchor being established just here, just right now, because it's all we have. And somehow our heart recognizes it. Well, our mind could just go clacking away. This is a waste of time. I don't know what I'm doing here. Or... I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a nun. I'm gonna be a monk. You know, whatever it's saying, that that clacking that, that that's going on, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I'm never gonna come here again. I'm always gonna come here again. I'm gonna uproot Gill. I'm gonna be another. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna oust Gill, and he's not gonna. Be, I'm gonna be the teacher. Whatever. The, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. It's, again, the moment is very. It doesn't discriminate. Doesn't matter, and that's very nice to know because um, it's so easy to get embarrassed by your thoughts. You know, I'm so ashamed of myself. I hate this person when I should love this person. You know, why can't I be more satisfied? I have everything I want. I have a car. I have kids. I have a roof over my head. I have, you know, warm clothes when it's cold. Oh, aren't I terrible? I have all these thoughts that I, you know, they're still not enough. That's not the point. The, the, the thoughts aren't the point at all. You know, and I have, you know, if I'm only I'm thinner and... I can't stand buying a bigger size clothes and I'm so embarrassed and what are they going to think and I was the psychologist for Weight Watchers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Those thoughts don't matter. The only thing that matters is as I pay attention to what they are. Are they greedy? You know, are they uh, deluded? You know, are they aversive? That's all that matters. And then I go back to, you know, whatever that fundamental feeling is of being embarrassed or whatever. And you survive it, you know. And, you know, really the key around food is surviving those, des- surviving those desires. And um, 
my husband's going to laugh at me because I, I just have a difficulty surviving hunger. That's what I have a difficulty doing. I, I have the feeling, the impulse arises, I see it as hunger, and I'm, I, you know, I, I, off I go. I want to eat, right? But if you don't indulge a desire, like if you run a retreat, or you can't indulge a desire, more importantly, because if I would, I could. If I could, I would. Um, what happens? It rises and it passes away like every other desire. It's, it's, it's impermanent quality shows itself. But if I lunge after the desire, I solidify it. It solidifies because for that moment, that, you know, that great moment when it's satisfied. You know, the reason why desire is such an addiction is because it, it, it does satisfy. In that moment, it is good. You know, it is good. Whatever you're lunging after, it's good. That's why, you know, the whole advertising industry works, right? Because for that moment, you get it, and it's good. It feels good. And then what happens? You want another moment of it. And what you got in the last moment doesn't work again. So you're after another bite, you know, or another ambition, or another, you know, um, dollar symbol in the bank account or decimal point in the bank account. So, you know, these addictions aren't for nothing. And the advertising industry has figured it out. And then I say, well, so yes, we should be able to, too. Because what we're really doing is looking at our inner advertisements. You know, that's what we're doing. We're looking at our inner advertisements, which, you know, are, it's very difficult. It's, 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 sometimes it's not so, it's not so uh, concrete as a car, right, or a, a restaurant. And, you know, the Buddha was very clear about, was, it was either the Buddha or Ajahn Chah. He said, food is feces. He was very direct. He saw it clearly. <laughs> he said, no matter if you have a good meal or a bad meal, it just, you know, it's going to go through the digestive system. And this is a really brilliant, uh, you know, tell it like it is insight. Because um, one time my, my husband and I had some friends up from L.A. and they wanted to go to a restaurant in um, Napa Valley called the French Laundry, which is apparently supposed to be the the greatest restaurant in America, whatever that means, right? I mean, if you're hungry, what's, is the French Laundry really the greatest restaurant in America? So um, we were number one on the waiting list, and you had to wait for a month. You had, to, you had No, excuse me, not wait. You had to call a month in advance, right? And then it was all, excuse me, three, oh, excuse me, three, three months in advance. All right, and um, I think my friends called, our friends called, three months and a day in advance, so we were number one on the waiting list, which, oh, you know, like a pierce in the heart, we're not going to get the best restaurant in America experience. And we didn't get off the waiting list, so that was a whole other conversation. Um, but it's the same, whether you eat a good, if you eat, if you eat at the French Laundry or at McDonald's, in and out, right? So, I mean, you know, this is, this is clear, this is clear seeing. This is clear seeing. Is either the Buddha or Arjun Chah who said this? So and he said to, you know, and not that, not that that's what you should think all the time when you're looking at your food because it could be. <laughs> but there's there's a there's a point there, you know. There's a point there when we're lusting after something, you know, you know the momentary pleasure of of it and the life of you know in the in the real reality of it are very different. And you could say the same thing about anything, you know that. Um, um, Agil, Agil says this often when he was meditating, and I think it was Burma, you know, the whole, the whole money um, economy changed. So the, 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 the bills that he had were meaningless. And then a whole different currency <laughs> applied while well, he was meditating. So, he, you know, he, he 
went into the meditation retreat you know, with a certain amount of money and he left with this meaningless paper, right? It's, it's very similar, you know, so any, you could say any money economy is just, it's like, it, it's, what is it? You know, it's, 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 it doesn't have the same meaning when you look at food as feces, as you look at, you, if you look at dollar bills as, as just scrap paper. You, you know, it, 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 it loosens the grip, doesn't it? I think it does. How am I doing on time? Because Gil said I have to... Oh, thank you. Yeah, because I have 45 minutes, but does that include questions? But he told me that I'd have to work hard because certain people are going to walk out on me at 10.45 on the dot, and I better be prepared for it, otherwise I'm going to think I was boring, right? So um, does, any, does, does anybody who's going to walk out have a question? <laughs> you should ask it now because we have about nine minutes. Um, for... For many years, I was the psychologist for Weight Watchers International in New York, and I didn't get it because I was so involved in the system why it didn't work. A few years ago, my husband and I were at a conference where a very young, brilliant scientist said, you know, the next 10 years we're going to see monumental changes in cancer um, treatment. And I'm thinking there, but... You can there's certain cancers that will be cured in the next 10 years. He said this with great conviction. And I'm thinking, how come we can't get people to lose weight, right? It's like, how could you know, we put people on the moon and we can't help people lose weight? Well, you know, if you sit for 10 minutes, you get it. It's that attachment to desire, that if you're just substituting one desire for another, your hatred for your body, for, you know, the, the pleasure that you think you're going to get, or gain from losing weight, and that that those attachments just keep you stuck and keep you hungry because you're not seeing the hunger, right? So um, when I left Weight Watchers, you know, it was like this dawning of the ages. You know, I got it. Why, you know, why the why Weight Watchers will survive like the nuclear holocaust because people will oh, people will be wanting to grasp after that pleasure they think is going to come from losing weight, which is just a goal in the future, and it's it's filled with you know grasping towards a certain goal and aversion towards a certain body, which is, you know, a very sad way to spend a life. And I certainly could say it's been a very sad part of my life, although, you know, I've also done a lot of healing with it. Don't get me wrong. But um, what I really saw tremendously when when the insights were kind of just dawning on me left and right was the the whole lack of gratitude in the, um, the weight management field, you know, that... If we really look at the data, you know, about half the world is starving. And that's not exaggerating, like, I'm starving. You know what I mean, how you say that? I'm starving. Let's eat. Not, not that kind of starving, but literally don't have enough to eat. And to me, it's just like, it was so criminal that these, that these um, companies, out of their own ignorance, really out of ignorance, were making like billions of dollars, like 57 billion, 67 billion. Weight Watchers won't even tell you how much they make. They wouldn't even tell me, and I work for them. Isn't that amazing? Because it's such an astronomical number. And to not be, not be taking one of the Buddha's major recommendations of the, eight, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Eightfold Path, 
which includes <clears throat> right intention or gratitude, you know, is, is just making us more hungry. You know, the fact that we're not looking at people who have ample supplies and looking for ways to help people who don't have ample supplies in a very direct way help feed each other because so much of weight or so much of addiction is starvation, right? And, and so much of physical hunger, you know, borders on starvation that, you know, it seemed to me the most natural pairing that we can ever manage. You know, it's so direct because hungry people can get fed by people who have too much, either too much weight or, you know, too much food or too much time or too much um, indulgence. Indulgence makes you hungry. Whether you're indulging in a diet, whatever, or indulging in the, in the fantasies of uh, being thin, indulgence makes you hungry. So does, restrict, so does constriction, by the way. You know, as you can tell from people, models or people who have anorexia, can, that makes you hungry too. You're never satisfied because you're never thin enough. And that's a very sad way to spend your life as well. And we've, we've made it a whole culture. You know, and so some people I encourage to literally feed the hungry and go in into soup kitchens and literally have the experience of giving a plate of food to somebody who's hungry, which is an amazing, beautiful, incredibly gratifying experience. Or you can give money to soup kitchens. And also I encourage people, I was talking about this with to Diana earlier, you know, the Tibetans, more than Vipassana, dedicates merit all the time. If you say something good about somebody, you dedicate merit. May the goodness of my words be benefit for all beings. May the goodness of my practice, we say, at the end of the day. But Tibetans are saying it all the time. May the goodness of my health, may the goodness you know, of this travel that I'm making, may the goodness of whatever, whatever I'm doing, you know, may it benefit all beings or may it benefit pregnant beings or people who are victims of stroke or whatever. Whatever your niche group is that you want to help. May, may all people, you know, in the way may, people struggling to get the perfect way, you know, may they, may they get the merit of what I'm doing and wake up to the greed of it, the delusion of it, the, the, you know, the aversive qualities of it, and really see where the only true nourishment could, that could ever, 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 ever be had is right now. And so to miss it, to have a whole industry Okay, designed to miss it. It's just incredible to me. You know, it's just incredible to me. The whole de industry is designed for us to miss the moment. Because otherwise we wouldn't keep coming back, right? It's going to be next week and next week, another pound, another pound. Anyway, I, 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 it was my job or my responsibility to bring a certain sense of mindfulness into Weight Watchers, which I'm very proud and pleased to say I was able to do and it's continued. But, you know, there's always, you know, th there's always more to see. There's always more to see. And so the Buddha, and that's what the Buddha said. He the Buddha meditated after he was enlightened. You know, it's not like he said, okay, I got it, which he did. You know, but he kept meditating. And so you can, because why? Because the moment's always here and you, you, you might as well not miss it. So you can't, you know, he, he couldn't stop meditating because that would be totally undermining the whole, you know, the, the whole wisdom of the practice, which is that you, cannot, you can never stop enjoying the, the um, satisfaction of the moment because that's all you ever have. That's all you ever have. And so, and it doesn't matter what the moment's bringing you because the moments are, moments don't discriminate. Moments are, dis inherent to moments that you are aware of is satisfaction. Inherent to moments that you're not aware of 
is, is a sense of hunger or that gnawing, that gnawing, longing, longing sense. Of want. So inherent to not seeing that is hunger. If you see it, that longing becomes your satisfaction. Your hatred becomes your satisfaction. Actually, I'm, very, I'm actually quite proud of how good I am at hating in the moment. <laughs> I've gotten very good at it. I'm not threatened by it as much as I used to be. And, I, and hating has a certain power in your body, you know? It's alive. It's, um, you, don't get, you don't go to sleep. You don't, get, you don't really get bored when you're hating, you know? It's, ve- it's a very active experience. But when you're identified with it, I mean, it's, it's really pretty brutal. You're just being battered left and right, you know? Um, and yeah, I've done my share of battering, and I'm sure I will continue to, but any of the moments that I can get compassion from it, from the, just the, the sensation of it, from, or the absurdity of it, you know, the whole catastrophe, is, as it said, you know, then it's my, it's, it's my meat instead of my poison. So I have one more minute. Um, <laughs> to sum it up, um, the, the Four Noble Truths are, are our salvation, really. If we can identify uh, what the symptoms are, and if we can look at what the root of the attachment is, um, and you only have a couple choices, you know, greed, hatred, or delusion, that's pretty easy. The symptoms are endless. The, the sources aren't. Um, and then to know that letting go, and the, letting go is really letting things be, you know, just see the hatred, you know, you know um, going up, blipping up and down the screen, or love. Um, and then ultimately there's paths to take with speech and with um, our minds and with our bodies that, this will bring, that these moments bring us liberation. And that's what, I mean, I think because, you know, the mind is so shameless and so audacious, I can't think of liberating the mind. I can only think of one, this moment, because otherwise it's way too overwhelming for this mind anyway. I hope it's not true for yours, but I can tell you mine. Uh, experience with the mind is, you know, it's just, just that breath, you know, in between obsessions and, you know, whatever, guilt trips, just the breath. You know, and then seeing just another moment. It's just incredible. And those moments add up, and those moments add up to inner strength and inner satisfaction and give us the power to keep coming back to try to sit through more, <laughs> sit through more moments of pain and fear and, uh, you know, again, the whole catastrophe. They, there's something that builds in your system. And the Buddha talked about um, building an inner bank account. I love that because... The, your external bank account could always be taken away, and it, it has been. The dot coms are rich, then they're poor, then they're, then they're destitute, then they're rich again. You know, it's a, it's fluctuating constantly. But the but the Buddha said you can only really build your mindfulness bank account. It doesn't. You, you, you can't you can't um, run at a deficit. Your awareness moments build, and you know, and that's a, one of the pleasures of meditation when you're sitting there. And you can actually survive an itch. You know, who survived an itch? It's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. You feel this incredible joy. You survived an itch. You didn't have to indulge it. And same thing with hunger. You survive a morning of hunger. You know, when you just think you, you can't bear it, you survive it. And then the next moment, then the next impulse gets, gets blunted because you've already survived it. 
You know, it's nice. So that's, that's how mindfulness builds a sense of inner strength. And that's what the Eightfold Path, whichever, whichever one of the eight you choose, you know, helps you build that kind of inner strength. And one time Gil told me, and maybe he's told you, I just love it, somebody just didn't have the fortitude to sit, right? She was all over the place. She was just, you know, itching and discomfort and, you know, restless and, you know, Mara just attacking left, right, and center. And um, one of her teachers said, okay, don't meditate, just be generous. Just every time, you know, smile at somebody, let them in the door first, you know, give away certain things, you know, just be generous because that's letting go. And I love that because actually generosity, I think on the factors of enlightenment or the... Um, yeah, I think I think it's, it comes before mindfulness, actually. But they're the same thing, really, because mindfulness is letting go and generosity is too. So, you know, sitting on the cushion may be appropriate this morning and tomorrow night it may not be. Tomorrow night it may be being generous to somebody by spending time on the phone. Or it may be generous not spending time on the phone, setting a boundary. I don't know. I mean, only you know. But there are many ways to liberate the mind. This is one of them. So thank you very much. Are there any questions? Oh, and may we dedicate our, the merit, may I dedicate the merit of this talk to um, hungry beings everywhere? Yes. Well, I, my training, I'm, I'm not. I'm a psychologist by training, but I have great respect for the neurobiological uh, um, findings that that have, that have are really taking over, kind of like the, the the mind psychology that I was trained in. But I am convinced, without an, really an ounce of training in the neurobiolo- neurobiology field, that meditation does change your inner chemistry, you know, to a radical extreme way, and that. I don't know if I'd go as far as saying DNA, but I'd go pretty close because I don't, I'd probably say it if I knew more. But, you know, I know that, I know that just tremendous physiological changes happen as a result of, of, of meditating. And they probably do affect the dopamine receptors, etc. So I'm just saying this not really being qualified, just my own experience. Any other questions? Please. Yes, Diana? Do you have anything to say about eating as a way to not be in the mind? Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing, you know, that you not, well, it's a lot of the whole thing is that you numb yourself to the moment because you're looking for, you're looking, again, you're not in the moment, you're looking for a feeling that's not there that you want to create through the eating. So it's, it's a combination of pleasure and numbing and numbing and pleasure. And when the num- numbing goes down, you use the pleasure to pleasure, you know, the pleasure steps up and you look for something else to eat. So we're always numbing the moment, either it's through food or the movies or, you know, moving on the cushion. What are we trying to do? We're trying to run away from the moment because we don't like it. And so, we, we, so we're told what all the pleasure centers, you know, what the ways we can get it. And food is certainly one of the ways that we get, we're told we can find you know, find, find a feeling of peace, but of course it never comes because, you know, hunger is part of the impermanent nature of, set, of fullness. It's the other side. So, I mean, how, you can't numb yourself permanently. 
So we, we then pick a pleasure that we're going to use to renumb and renumb and renumb. But it, it shows its inherent quality. It's, it's, it's unsatisfactory because it can't last. The pleasure can't last, neither can the numbness. So then you just go, okay, I might as well just be with what is, since none of it's going to, and including this, isn't going to last. The frustration of seeing that isn't going to last. The anger when you really realize how manipulated you feel, that's not going to last either. Does that answer? Okay. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I just wouldn't know. I mean, I, I, I the, my, my moments are, are not all that. I mean, I, I, um, I would hope that we would store food, but not for ourselves, for other people. But because um, we'd have the, we'd have a certain built-in stability to know that we can receive satisfaction in many different ways, including food. You know, when you're in love, you don't need to eat that much. And they've shown this research-wise, right? You know, people who are in love eat less because they're just they're floating on all those dopamine things. And um, um, I, I just assume that that's, I mean, that's similar to what, what liberation would be. I don't, believe me, I don't know. I mean, I wish I, wish I, could, I wish I could answer that question someday. But I don't know. Ask Gil. He's more, he's more in that league than I am. Any other questions? Comments? Yes? M&M's, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then to let it go. And I found that it, it's possible to do it. To survive it. To, to, to survive it and then realize that I have choices. Yes. And that... Thank you. That's such a beautiful insight. Yeah, that's what mindfulness offers us: is choices that we, 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 that we're stripped of or deprived of when we're just acting compulsively. Beautiful. Any other comments, experiences? Yes. Well, attachments have everything to do with it, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, I, you know, I think that's a, a very wise comment because we always, Buddhism or meditation is all about relationships. It's, it's the whole thing is about rela- relationships to our experience. And so you can have a relationship with a dopamine, you know, reaction, right? Or non-reaction. You can have a relationship with it. And whether you're smacking it around or, you know, hugging it so tightly it bursts, you know, that's your choice. I'm just saying when we better understand things like dopamine processing, mm-hmm. pleasure and addiction, it's easy to become unaccountable. Yeah. And maybe dopamine situation is driving you or it's genetic and there's nothing you can do about it. Or it's really just in your brain that it's trying to co-variate with your thoughts. Yeah, and your response. Yes, that's, as I said, it's very wise thinking. Right, it's really right thinking, because um, Buddhism is very, very radical in the sense, and that's and that's the heart of the radical nature of it, is that there are no victims. There are no victims in Buddhism. You know, you only have, 
you know, to the extent that you develop a relationship, that's your, that's, you're either, you're, you're on the path to victory or you're on the attach, the path to victimization, which is all about attachment. So, um, we never lose that power of looking at our relationships to the present moment or towards concepts. And it, but does take strong presence of mind. And the reason why I think the victimization hypotheses are so popular is because the, the, that inner strength that we, I was talking about earlier, that inner anchor of how that inner bank account builds after seeing moment after moment awareness, right? Um, that takes a certain presence of mind. If you don't have that presence of mind, it's real easy to feel, feel like a victim because you're just getting knocked around left, right, and center about what's going to make you happy, right? What's going to make, or, or you know, what you should stay away from that's going to make you sad, and you have no inner anchor. You, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no discriminating wisdom, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, that 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 allows you to say, "Hey, wait a minute. I've done this the eight thousand million trillion. There's not a number that even is in the universe how many times I've done this, and I don't have to do it again, right? It takes a it takes an enormous amount of strength. So, so you know, I I always I've said this before that meditators have to have a very strong stomach and a very soft heart. Because you have to see unbelievable things when you're meditating. You know, I mean, things that are very difficult to see, that most people would rather not. They'd rather, it's easier to see yourself as a victim, right? And certainly, if you don't have that inner anchor, you can't see it. How? You know, you're, you, you become a believer, and you're, and you're back on the, you know, the, the uh, wheel off center. So that those... We're always developing relationships, we're always, and, and to be able to let go of the moment and let it just be what it's going to be, it takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of practice to be able to be at that place. It's not a begin, that's not a, not something that you get when you just sit down on the cushion, you know, and, and meditate for 10 times, let's say. It's, that faith is not there. It builds and builds and builds until you, you have that inner strength I could, that tells you I could survive it, I could see it. And, you know, and if I'm ashamed or bleeding or whatever it is, you know, it's just what it is. And I'm not going to imbue it. I'm not going to give it any more power than it already has, has had over my life. And, that, and so it takes a lot of radical um, um, and non-conforming energy to be a meditator. And then it takes, you know, as a meditator, you know, a lot of, inner strength that comes from the presence to you know, have the stomach to see with a soft heart. Because if you don't see with a soft heart, you're just, you're just strengthening the addiction. Does that make sense? I mean, you said it better, but I, it's just another way of whatever. Yeah? Normal people, right? From, from the greedy, the hatred. We watch a movie that's movie images are 30 seconds, and we see it as continuous motion. Right. Meditators are seeing these things at the level of a thousand seconds. Interesting. They don't see movies in a continuous way unless they want to. So it's a choice. Studies say. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
for it. Thank you for mentioning that. I didn't mean, because I, I agree with you, there is a growing body of evidence that is looking at these things. I'm not as familiar as I li I'd like to be, but I, I, I'm glad you mentioned it because there is the, that wonderful work that Daniel Goldman has done and others um, looking at the physiological correlates and the behavioral correlates of people who study mindfulness, uh, including children. You know, including policemen and prison people. I mean, all you know, many different kinds of populations. But as I understand, dependent in origination is certainly a lofty topic to try to understand or, or experience. But I'm not sure if it's so, so much intercepting between feeling and thought as allowing the the feeling to the feeling um, tone to rise and pass away. So it, it just it, it allow it to go through its own life cycle without it being reborn into a conception. So I'm, not, so I'm not sure if it's so much intercepting as it is um, a, a non-involvement. Does, does that make sense? Okay. That, 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 that catches us, sure. Right, so... That's Batgirl. Um, yeah, that's very well said, and I think that being able to stay with the anxiety of not knowing, and which is why um, many great meditation masters have talked about meditation as not knowing mind, don't know mind, comes from that ability to hang out with that emotion or the, that ambivalence, or that, that frustration or anxiety um, in a way that doesn't need to go into the conceptual world. It's just what it is. It's a moment. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a moment hitting the eye. You know, it's creating a feeling. It doesn't, it doesn't have to go into a reaction. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a good way of putting it. That you can you could just stay with the, that ambiguity of not locking it into a concept. Did you have a question? No? Time to end? Okay. Thank you very much. I enjoyed speaking here today. I wish you well. Moment by moment. <laughs>